Hey all, welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren, I'm your host, and today we're going to talk to Jess Priles, and we're going to discuss all things hardcore carnivore. I'll be right back with Jess. Smoking, grilling, getting hot and hotter, sous vide and chilling from fire and water. Hey all, this is Darren, and I want to take a minute to talk to you about Masterclass. I just signed up for Masterclass, and I can tell you what, it's well worth it. Masterclass is where you can learn how to cook from Gordon Ramsay. You can learn how to sous vide from Thomas Keller. You can learn how to make Texas barbecue from Aaron Franklin himself. All these classes are available on Masterclass, plus many more. Masterclass has great video content, interactive assignments, social interaction with the Masterclass community, all for just one fee. You can either buy each individual class for $90 each, or you can sign up for the annual pass, which gives you access to all their classes for just $180. And that's what I signed up for. Check it out, guys. Masterclass has some of the best online training you can find. Check it out, guys, in the link below. Masterclass, amazing. Now on to the show. Welcome back to the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I'm Darren, I'm your host, and today we have a very special guest. We have Miss Jess Priles from Hardcore Carnivore. And if you're not familiar with her, well, Jess is going to tell you who she is. Welcome, Jess. I appreciate you being on. Hey, you bet. Thank you for having me on. It's uh, it's always awesome to be able to chat to like-minded meat cooks, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, I guess this is the part where you want me to go crazy. And yeah, just tell me who you are, where you're from, and, and what you do, and all that. You bet. Uh, so I'm originally from Australia, which is why I have a very strange hybrid accent, but I live in Texas now, in Austin, Texas. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm the, the boss at Hardcore Carnivore Seasonings, and I'm the founder of the Australasian Barbecue Alliance, and I could rattle off a whole lot more um, accolades, but it's probably just simple to say, you know, I'm someone who never really used to cook meat at home myself because I loved eating it, but I was very intimidated by choosing the cuts and knowing how to cook it. And then I had this kind of religious experience when I came to Texas for the first time and ended up, uh, trying barbecue because that's what you do when you come here. It's part of the, the rite of tourist passage. And, uh, we had never had anything like that in Australia at the time. So it was this incredible experience. And through that, I ended up ultimately learning more about meat because I was trying to figure out why a brisket in Australia did not look like a brisket in Texas. And then as you learned about that, um, you know, I, I learned a lot about the beef industry in particular, and I learned how to barbecue. I, I would sit overnight with pitmasters and just fascinated by it all. And so um, it morphed into a full kind of live fire barbecue grilling uh, thing for me where I love sharing with other people what I've learned in my journey. So it, it's just that simple. I feel so empowered by the things I've learned. It's made me, you know, a pretty, pretty good meat cook, I would say. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and now, yeah, I basically just you know, talk about everything from meat science to recipes to techniques and, and share the love. 
Well, that's one thing I like to talk about with, with my guests is to find out where the passion came from. And you just, you just told me that you visited Texas. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't, wasn't something you discovered at home. You actually went somewhere, you discovered it in Texas and you brought it back to Australia with you. And you started some things back in Australia that kind of got your ball rolling. And, um, one of the things you already mentioned is you, you started the Australia Asian barbecue Alliance. And what, what is that? If you could talk about that just a little bit. Yeah, for sure. Uh, well done on the Australasian. That word trips a lot of people up. And for those who don't know, it basically means it encompasses the sort of whole Australian Southeast Asian region. <laughs> so it's like saying in North America for the for the Australian region. So um, basically, Australasian Barbecue Alliance is the largest barbecue sanctioning body in the Southern Hemisphere. But it started by me and two other guys just kind of wanting to get together and make things a little bit more official because the scene was just such in its infancy then. There were literally, like, you could count on, on two hands how many people were into proper barbecue and, and competition-style barbecue. So we kind of just sought to build a more formal structure and um, really just like any any sanctioning body here – um, mainly at the time, it was also to really cultivate a community and a place where everyone could go um, and, and and see each other and, and these events where they could hang out together because it was like this little club of, you know, random people that happened to like the same thing. And, and most people did not know about that there. Um, and over the years, I mean, it's changed even for me personally, like I have a tremendous amount of respect for people who do competition barbecue because it's incredibly difficult to roll up to various locations and produce, take, take a natural product and then make it identical every single time. Um, so it's a very difficult job, but Personally, I don't have a lot to do with competition barbecue anymore and, and in fact have never competed because every competition barbecue cook that I know has always told me that they would never cook like that at home. It's just you, you're cooking differently to, for the judges. And I'm of the opinion that you should cook for what you want to eat, not because it's a sport. So um, it's definitely something that I'm proud to have helped grow mainly because of the community aspect. There's a huge Facebook page associated with it too, a Facebook group rather. Um, but uh, it's funny. It's really, it's, it's exploded there now too. It's, it's a huge, 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 huge scene. But uh, as far as comp barbecue goes, um, I think I definitely have, have moved past that in terms of just wanting to cook differently for, for my, my recipes and my friends and family. Yeah, there's uh I've had several, you know, uh competition barbecue guys on, Malcolm Reed and Harry Sue and um all of them say the same thing and there is Eaton barbecue and comp barbecue and um uh, you know, even uh, Rochelle uh Reed who's uh, Mal Malcolm's wife told me, you know, yeah, we don't eat, you know, the the competition stuff. You know, we don't feed that to our families. That goes to a judge for one bite and then it gets pretty much thrown away. <laughs> Because, I know, and that's something. So yeah. I think that's the part that I have this like internal struggle with. There's just there's something that's just such a disconnect between people admitting that, and yet that's you know that's the standard for for championships. Because a lot of the times, being able to say that you're a championship pitmaster or an award winning pitmaster qualifies you, and I think gives you a lot of um, 
you know, a lot of stay in people's, a lot, a lot of uh, credit in people's eyes. And it certainly does for the reasons that I already suggested in terms of, you know, it's someone who is consistent in the sport in terms of turning up, cranking out consistency. But it just, it's so strange to me that there's just that disconnect that we eat food and we're passionate about food and you're passionate about this podcast because we love eating and yet championships are won by food that they would not eat. Is that not? (laughs) It's the one bite. And you know, and what, you know, what they've told me is that you're just, you're wanting to get the judge's attention on that one single bite that they take. That's why, you know, you see uh, Johnny Triggs pouring, you know, honey, agave, parquet, all that stuff on his ribs that you Mm -hmm. go, God, I would never cook that at home. I mean, you know, people would take one bite and grimace and go good stuff and kind of spit it out into a napkin. (laughs) So, but yeah, you're right. (laughs) It may be that it's more like a comment about, you know, maybe the judging process than anything else, but, um, uh, it's, it, I couldn't do it. I'll, I'll tell you that I could not do what those guys do. So I think it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. And, and the big thing with the comps and even all of them say it's the camaraderie. Yeah. Some of them go there for the, you know, to, to win and, you know, they, they do that, but most of it is you know, just to hang out with people and talk about cooking and, and eating. So the Australasian barbecue Alliance, it didn't start out as like a KCBS, like a, um, uh, competition, you know, body where, where it put on contests. It was more of just like a, like a club or a group of people who got together to barbecue pretty much. No, it, was, it was very much, you know, similar to an IBCA or KCBS. It was a sanctioning body just because, um, the, you know, there, it need, there needed to be, there had been, I think there were three competitions that had been informally run in Australia before we did the, and founded the ABA. And, uh, they were all, it was just a little bit ragtag. And sometimes it was a lot of the times it was also people who had never actually been to the States or been to a competition who just kind of interpreted what they were seeing online. So because I'd been to Texas so much and and was kind of traveling back and forth, we had the advantage of a great festival organizer, someone who at the time worked in city council. So he had this incredible ability to manage people and be very judicious. And then I brought in the the aspect of having been and and judged at competitions in the States. So it was just to offer a a, a much more structured thing. So it was, it is a sanctioning body, but it's also grown to a community. So it sounds to me like it is responsible for bringing you know, Texas style or American style barbecue into Australia to show people how, how it's done over here. Is, is that you know safe to say? Yeah, I think it was definitely one of the, it was, it was a, an absolutely crucial first step in that scene. I mean, the amount of Australians that make a pilgrimage to Texas every year to do their own discovery is just colossal. Um, there's just something about, the way that barbecue has captured the Australian imagination and, and just resonated with cooks over there. Um, and people come all the time. I mean, SCA is hugely popular in Australia too. And in fact, SCA is partnered with the ABA down there. Um, because it, you know, which Aussie doesn't love a steak. I mean, who doesn't love a steak, but, uh, that's become hugely popular. And a lot of those guys are then traveling over to the SCA championships in Fort Worth too. Yeah, uh, I talked with, I had just had Brent on, um, and he was telling me, you know, they started out with uh, like 
14 or 16 competitions the first year when they first put this on. And now they're going to do 500 this year, internet, you know, between, you know, the United States and, and Europe and Australia and just pretty much anywhere else. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's, you know, phenomenal growth that, that, that organization has. And, uh, uh, it's just mind boggling that they can go in just six years from, you know, 14 to 15 little local events to, you know, 500 nationwide. And he said, you know, he, he sees it just continuing to grow to get up to like at least a thousand. He says, he doesn't know how far they, they can stretch themselves. <laughs> yeah, so well, I mean, that's the growing pains of, you know, I, I empathize with him. It's the growing pains of getting into something because you're passionate about it and then having it kind of explode in a good way in front of you. So exactly. they're doing a great job of managing it so far. So is Australian barbecue before, but the Texas influence or North American influence started coming in. Was it more grilling? Was it more, was, was it just a different style? How could you explain well, it? I didn't have smoking. So it, it's all like there'd be, there were a lot of kind of propane fired flat tops and there's a lot of like basic kettles and then just a lot of propane grills. And it was, you know, the cheapest, grocery store sausages that are kind of cremated to a crisp and just the main thing that I noticed, which is really, really, really changed now. But the main thing that I noticed between the abilities of the cooks over here. And I, when I say cooks, I mean just men and women who were gorillas in their house was that here there was much more of an understanding about marinades and seasonings and flavor profiles and cuts and just you know it was a really passionate thing grilling and barbecuing because that's what I mean that's what you call in Australia it was just all grilling there was no real low and slow barbecue but when they, when we say throw a shrimp on the barbie a barbie is a grill right so that also confused things but um it really was just, I, I didn't, there wasn't as much emphasis on like kitchen prowess and food prowess back there with barbecue and grilling. It was just take a couple of steaks out, take a sausage out, cook it till it's done. You're done. There was no, there was no real nuances to it on the whole, but we also had some incredible influences. Like we have a huge Greek community in Australia. So it's very, very common to see lamb on a spit over coals, for example, um, so there were some cool cultural e exceptions to it, but on the whole, it was just like generic propane grilling that we had. And so opening that up to the idea of smoking and indirect cooking just changed everything. Yeah, I find it hard to get passionate about something that is very limited. And that's what it, you know, one of the things that attracts me to cooking outdoors and just cooking in general. I've been cooking since I was a teenager and th there's always something new to try. And there's always something evolving, especially with barbecue. I've, I've had this conversation with many people and I'm going to have another one today with Meathead Goldwyn. I mean, it just, just over the years watching how not just in you know America, but everywhere like Australia included, like you were part of that where the cooking methods can evolve and, and change and, and people can discover new ways of doing things. And that's kind of why I, I got to concentrate in mix and sous vide with barbecue. Cause when I first started, I was big into barbecue for years. When I start, first started looking at sous vide, the first thing I thought of was, well, Hey, I can kind of use it in combination with barbecue to kind of create something totally new and different, which, um, which, 
that's that's what I like. That's what gets me very passionate about is creating new things and different things and taking some of the old traditional stuff and mixing it with some newfangled stuff and then making something that you couldn't make any other way. That's it's always exciting to have those kind of tools at your disposal. You know, it's it's because it does get to the point where. Um, you know, and there's nothing wrong with this if people are into it, but you know, you grilling a steak is kind of grilling a steak and you can mess around with reverse sear or non-reverse sear or direct heat, but that's kind of, you know, that's kind of it. Um, it doesn't necessarily need anything more than that, but yes, you do introducing something like, you know, like sous vide or that low smoke or mixing smoke flavors or techniques just, just opens your options. And I think if you you're a creative person, which cooking is, then the more tools that you're given to paint on your canvas makes it more exciting for you. Exactly. So how long did it take you to get the real bug and then decide to move to Texas from Australia? Um, it wasn't too long. It was, well, it, it took a couple of years, but it was just one of those things where by that stage I'd actually, you know, I'm a, I'm a big I do a pretty good job of being an honorary Texan. I love my home state. I call it my, you know, it's my new home state. I'm very passionate about it. So by that stage, I'd already fallen in love with Texas and just really wanted to live here and live the lifestyle. So it was, it was probably three or four years. Um, and then April will be my fifth year anniversary of emigrating. So it's been a little while. It's been a minute. Well, and I was going to say, I've li- I've watched some of your earlier videos and, and talking to you now. You can definitely tell the the accents changed a little bit. <laughs> it <laughs> so you- has, and it it's like the number one most commented thing uh, that people comment about on my social media when I post a video. And it's like, you know, it starts by a need to just be understood. Because if I talk with a very heavy Australian accent. There are different words that that Americans would struggle to understand. So first you start by just adjusting to be understood the first time you say something. And then it just becomes a matter of, you know, monkey see, monkey do. So if I'm hearing the accent, I'm talking it back. Now, how often do you get back to Australia for, you know, promotions or anything like that? Do you get back often? Yeah, I usually end up there a couple times a year. Um, I've been lucky enough to still have some in- incredible connections in the Aussie beef industry and do a lot of stuff down there with that. So, you know, be it feedlot stuff or I was there last year for the um, anniversary of their Angus Association, which is pretty cool. So uh, it, it's it's a long flight, but I feel like even though I've left, I've been back plenty. So um, it's do you get do you get people come from Australia to visit you to learn from you and bring it back? Um, it's a little, I don't, I, you know, I, I know we're going to touch on classes and I, I teach classes in Austin probably like twice a year. So they're not very frequent. Um, and I do a lot of classes at other locations. So, um, you know, this year I'll probably, I, I think I'll be in Florida. I'll be in Minnesota. I'll, I'll, there's a couple of different, different spots going to be in Sweden. So, uh, it's hard for people to come here and learn from me because we don't have like a flagship store and I don't have a school here. So people come to Austin, they're like, Hey, I want to meet you. And I'm like, okay, but I'm sitting in my pajamas. Like I can't just, come, <laughs> you know, I, I wish that there was an easier way to connect with folks when they are in Austin. But unfortunately it's just, it's not very, people think it's very glamorous, but it's not like it's, it's home. Right. So. Right. Yeah. So- so you're in Austin, so 
you live there now. What is the best barbecue restaurant in Austin? You know, I can't answer that. That's why I put you on the spot. I hear, you know, a lot of people go there and and what they like to do is the barbecue crawls, of course. So um, nobody likes to say the best. I mean, I know that, you know, Franklin's got, you know, people waiting out, you know, his front door, you know, at five o'clock in the morning. And uh, I'm I'm sure there's a lot of others around there. And then, then you got the people in East Texas and Dallas that will tell you that, you know, Austin's not the barbecue capital, but you know, I, I know, um, you know, there's a lot of different good barbecue around Texas and it would be hard for me to pick a favorite. I, I mean, have I, a list of like places that I, like a short list that I'm happy to recommend, but it always comes with this caveat that, you know, everyone has good days and everyone has bad days. And I've been surprised by places too. So I think that's also part of it. And, and then taste is subjective. Like I've had people come to me and tell me that they enjoyed a place that I had like a horrible experience at. And I was like, huh, okay, that's interesting. So I try and just give them a, a choice of options of like really solid places that are probably going to be great, you know, but that's why I find it really difficult to kind of name the best. But I will say for anyone who is thinking about coming to Texas, um, the real sleeper for me is Fort Worth. Like there's, and don't think that Dallas and Fort Worth are the same city just because they, next they have airport in between them. But uh, Fort Worth it, barbecue scene is exploding. Like, I think it's going to be the next Austin. Houston, for that matter, too. But um, there's there's some incredible stuff happening there. And it's all very accessible still without any ridiculous lines. Now, one of the things that always amazes me about barbecue, and like you said, you know, taste is always um, subjective and you know, that's one of the things I have to get through to people. I have a really large Facebook group and people come in there all the time. Well, what's the best blah? You know, what's the best, what's the best this or that? And it's like, well, here's some guidelines for you, but you know, you're going to be the one to tell you what's the best <laughs> for, for you because I may like so- something a certain way and you may not. So I'm going to tell you here's some options. But I, I, one of the things I really love about barbecue is that you know, it's regional and it, even within the Texas, the state of Texas, there's yeah different you know types i know southern texas is different than austin uh you know dallas may have you know different you know styles of barbecue as well so they're you know then you got north carolina and kansas city and memphis they're all they all have their different spins on everything and that's what i love because it's all different stuff and it all can be great you know you know it's really i don't know i never want to limit myself and say this is the best barbecue it's the only one i want to ever eat because i like experimenting and i like trying different things because it's just like a difference between smoked chicken and fried chicken. I love them both, you know? So why, why say I'm only going to eat, you know, smoked chicken the rest of my life? Right. I think to your point about regional styles though, I think that there's an interesting phenomena that's happening where barbecue is definitely becoming more homogenized. So they've people have kind of cherry picked the best from everywhere. You know, traditionally you wouldn't see the, the Texas Trinity um, here is considered brisket um, and pork ribs and sausage. And you wouldn't traditionally see pulled pork here, which is a much more Carolina thing. Um, Just the idea of hog barbecue full stop. Well, I mean, there's like, I can, you know, five places I can think off the top of my head that now do whole hog here in Texas, which was never a thing. And you can go, you know, you can go to Brooklyn and get, a plate of brisket that's as good as you would get in Texas. I, so I feel like when these modern barbecue joints are opening up, 
they're cherry picking the best dishes from the best regions and then trying to produce them as best they can. And that's why I think we're seeing a lot of those same, like the trays looking the same. You're seeing a little bit of brisket. You're seeing, um, you know, certain sides that are similar. Um, If they're making sausage, they're probably making it in the Texas style. If they're making pulled pork, it probably has a vinegar dressing on it. And so the regionality is there in terms of where it originally came from, but I think you're, the lines are getting blurred in terms of what you can get where now. Yeah. Yeah. And I've seen that as well, especially when you got a lot of these chain restaurants like uh, mission barbecue or, or what have you that, um, you know, they, they try to do that. Like you said, take a little bit from here, a little bit from there. So people can have that experience, you know, mm-hmm. um, not everybody can be a Franklin and do everything just one way every okay. single time. Right. So, I mean, not to say his way is not great, but you know, people are always looking for variety and, and um, you know, I, I appreciate that as well. So, um, mm-hmm. all right, well, we're going to take a little bit of break here and um, we will be right back with Jess Priles from Hardcore Convoy. Hey, all I want to introduce you to a company I just started working with fresh Jack's organic spices out of Jacksonville, Florida. They're a small, family-run company that's fast-growing. I've tried a bunch of their different seasoning blends and spices, and I can tell you they are all fresh, all organic. None of them contain artificial flavors or sweeteners. None of them have anti-caking agents or preservatives. They all taste like they were just made for you yesterday. Check them out, guys. They're on Amazon in the link below. They have different sample packs different blends like i said they also have the individual seasonings and spices as well fresh jacks organic spices check them out guys i love them all right we're back with jess and we're going to talk about what you're doing now pretty much and i want to talk to we kind of just talked talked about um different styles and methods um of barbecue but i also want to get into different cooking methods because you you, you've kind of like you told me that you switched over not really switching but kind of expanding from just barbecue into more of just live fire so that would include you know grilling and and just cooking with a with live fire no matter what it is mm-hmm. um, uh what so what other cooking methods do you play around with besides you know barbecue and grilling do you uh, do anything indoors i mean have you baked do you do you stuff like that yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I do bake a lot, actually, but um, I'm very proud of my biscuits. But, you know, my cookbook, which is also called, called Hardcore Carnivore, and a lot of people think the cookbook relates to the seasoning, but the cookbook preceded the seasoning. So it really is just a collection of my recipes, not necessarily a collection of, you know, recipes and how to use the seasoning. But um the cookbook itself like pertains to it's basically split into chapters of protein. And I just am a huge believer in cook the protein in the best way that that protein should be cooked or explore exactly what we were talking about earlier. Like let yourself explore different techniques because, you know, I, I, I love barbecue smoked ribs but i love braised short ribs too and i think that there's also something to be said so for example i like my steak grilled if i could have it anyway it would be grilled over kingsford charcoal like that good old sear but i don't like it smoked because for me 
on something as delicate as a steak, the smoke flavor kind of interrupts the beef flavor. But for but for a heavier cut where there's so much beef flavor, like a brisket, um, the smoke works really well. So I am also a believer in that not everything should be put in a smoker. And I feel like there are also folks that swing the other way that want to make everything in their outdoor cooker, everything in their smoker. Um, so I cook a lot in cast iron. I do, you know, I'll do braises in the oven. Um, I'll do braises in the smoker sometimes, Uh, but I love the flexibility of being able to cook that protein in the best manner or that cut in the best way that I think it should be cooked or at least experiment with it. Um, instead of being limited to what I can do with it. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of agree. Um, but you can't learn if you don't experiment. And that's one of my big things, especially when I try to instruct people in, in my Facebook group and stuff is, is that you you don't really know how good it can be unless you try it. You know, you may try it and then go, well, I don't like it that way. And that's great. But then, you know, make sure you try it, you know, another different way. And then there is, like you said, there are best ways, you know, especially, you know, when you're talking about personal preference, there's going to be a best way that you like, your steak you may not like the smoke flavor profile on a steak but somebody else might go well that's what my steak's been missing all my life yeah yeah. but if you're not experimenting and if you're not trying new things you're never going to know if if you only cook the way your mom cooked you know exactly your mom's recipes all your life you're not going to know if there's something else better for you out there so exactly so and then another part for me that i've really enjoyed so i've I've really enjoyed the flexibility of breaking out from just barbecuing um i love live fire cooking i love cooking over charcoal i love the control that you get um i love that it lets me do so many different things but i also um have really enjoyed the meat science aspect of things. So, you know, I put out a video every week and I try and alternate them between a recipe and then a little kind of like the more, you know, meat science information. So for example, I've done things like, you know, why is it actually safe to eat your steak rare or how to choose the best ribeye and what, when, what to look for or is brown raw meat safe to eat? And just these little questions that, you know, there's so much misinformation about meat and especially beef out there. Um, I really like empowering people by just correcting the, the misunderstandings, you know, a lot of people. And when they comment on these videos or the social media posts are like, Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, thank you. That's so helpful. Or I was always worried about that. And now I don't have to worry anymore. And it's just really nice to contribute something like that. You know, there's a million people who will teach you how to cook a brisket on YouTube, but there's not that many folks that can then, I guess, empower you with information to to take into your own kitchen and go forward. Yeah. It's the telling you why thing. And that's what I like to do as well. And that's one of the things that, you know, it really attracted me to, to Meathead over at Amazing Ribs is because he tries to do that as well. He breaks down the science part of it, which is important, not to everybody, but most people want to know why. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to they want to know why you have to smoke a, a brisket, you know, to an internal temperature, you know, over 200 degrees a lot of times to get it to to be tender. They, they don't understand that there's collagen and connective tissue in there that, that has to break down and it takes a long time or it's going to dry out. You know, um, 
telling, you know, explaining to them how the difference between a ribeye and like I saw one of your uh, videos about London broil or top round, which is what mostly, you know, you know, you know, I know that the grocery stores think they're doing people a, a service by labeling stuff London broil, <laughs> but, <laughs> but it's not because then people go, well, I got this London broil. What do I do with it? It's like, well, is it a top round? Is it a bottom round roast? You know, it's usually a tough piece of meat, no matter how you look at it. So, right. but, um, you know, and you always got the people that know that it's the London broil is not a cut and they like to hammer people over the head with it. And in, in some of the Facebook groups, but, you know, being able to explain it to people, you know, what is this? Why is it, you know, why is this a better way? Or why is this, why is it done this way is always great. And people always will remember you for that. for sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's also like, you know, I, I think that sometimes, especially you would know from your Facebook group, I'm sure you see this phenomenon with people who like to kind of, I call them being meat Columbus, like the Columbus of meat, where they want to discover a new cut. And there's there's only so many muscles on an animal, and that hasn't changed in several thousand, hundreds of thousands of years. But um, we are developing new ways to cut it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the right way to do it. So, for example, one of the things that kind of like I wish that people would think a little bit more about is kind of being very gratuitous with things just because it looks good on the internet. And a great example of that for me would be the steamship round, for example. So the steamship round is pretty much the entire ham of a, of a beef animal. So the whole back leg that it was so called because they, you know, the, the rumor goes that they used to serve it on the steamships because it's just this giant cut of meat that they used to roast like that. So there are several meat science universities all across the United States. And what these universities or these departments in the universities do is they spend time researching things like palatability, how to make your, you know, how to, why a steak tastes better, how it should be cut differently. Um, we learn different things like in the chuck, which used to go into, you know, a chuck roast that actually the chuck contains two of the most tender muscles on the animal after the tenderloin. So we, we learn about the muscles and we learn how to do them better. But then, you know, so, so for example, with the steamship, there's some really nice muscles in there. And then there are other muscles that need more cooking. But why would you take a whole one and just cook the crap out of it when you know that there's something in there that should be cooked differently? Well, because it looks really impressive on the internet, you know? So I think we're swinging back that way too a little bit. I, there's a photo going around on the same thing that's done the rounds a million times of like a lamb wrapped in a pig wrapped in a cow. And I cannot think of a worse way to prepare meat than that. Like yeah. So many counterintuitive things about cooking something that way, uh, especially, you know, like imagine cooking a brisket and a tenderloin the same way. Like it just doesn't make sense. Right. Yeah. And I, I see people, um, I just saw a video recently about cooking a tri-tip the same way as a brisket, which I can understand if you're experimenting and you want to try something, but a tri-tip is more like a steak, like you said. And there's a reason why it's not cooked like a brisket. (laughs) Brisket has a lot more fat and connective tissue in it to, um, you know, break down and become gelatin when it gets over that 200 degrees where the tri-tip doesn't, it's mostly, you know, a leaner type meat. So, 
You know, you just I mean, there's people who, you know, that's how they do it in California. And they like that roastier profile to it, which I, I do also understand. But I agree with you. Like, uh, I see people doing that with with um, top blade roasts and flat irons. And the flat iron is one of like literally it sits in the top three most tender muscles on, on a beef cow. So it seems to me counterintuitive to take that and smoke it. It would be like smoking a ribeye all the way through, which I feel like they would never do just because people are looking for new things to smoke. But just because you want to doesn't mean you should, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I definitely understand, you know, what you're talking about there, but uh, I've seen people, I've seen people do it just to discover, to see if they can. And it's like, it's still not, you know, (laughs) the best way you know, to do something. and Well, like, some people just like to find out themselves, you know, and like to say they've done it. And I understand that perspective too, but, um, you know, sometimes it's less fun to do that than to just kind of go boldly <laughs> yourself and give it a shot. But um, I just don't like how it becomes gratuitous in terms of, you know, we just know so much about beef now. We know so much about how it should be prepared and uh, it, it shouldn't just be about, squeezing the juice out of it for a video or slicing it for the internet before you do for yourself. And I'm really conscious when I do recipe development, even, you know, that I've either told a whole bunch of friends to come around later and pick up some food or, you know, just, just making sure that I'm kind of being a bit ethical with it as well, but that's just my comfort zone. So you're not, you know, a fan of the meat squeezers out there that, that cook the brisket just so they can squeeze the meat. <laughs> uh, I'm not a fan of anyone who cooks meat just to get fans on, on the internet. Like that's yeah. not really what it's about, but right. um, yeah, uh, that, and that's why I said, and sometimes it's a necessary evil. Like I cook it to do videos, but I always try and time it as best I can to either feed people or donate it or, uh, you know, feed myself or whatever it is, but what, it, you know, whatever makes someone else happy, go for it. That's just not, I, I don't think that that's sending the right message. Like I don't yeah. like food for it, you know? Right. Yeah. And that's the thing I do YouTube videos as well, but I I'm cooking for my family, you know, or, you know, a guest I'm doing the video. That's why at the end, I'm always like rushing because I got people to feed. So we're going to do this real quick. And let me ask you then, how would you feel if you, uh, you know, be it sous vide or whatever, cooked something and then your guests are all sitting there because, you know, they, they're the ones you're supposed to be entertaining and supposed to be cooking for do you do you slice it all to get the best shot for the camera? Do you make them wait until it's cold? Do you squeeze it out so you get the shot and then you're not actually feeding them good stuff? Like, what's your take on that? Um, usually, I, I'm not doing it if I have, like, a lot of guests there. I'm not filming. I only film, like, if I'm cooking for my family. And I usually don't take a lot of time. It's it's still hot when I'm, when I'm doing it. That's why if you watch any of my videos at the end, I'm really quick. Here it is. I take a quick picture. You know, I'll take a a taste real quick and then I shut the camera off. I don't do a lot of, it's not sitting there very long. And then we, then we go and eat. So, I mean, it's, um, I don't do a big, huge, if I do like a cook for an event, I'm going to do, it's usually an event for the next day that I'm, I'm just doing the main cook, like pulled pork or what have you. I'm doing a bunch of it. I'm just going to reheat it the next day and take it somewhere. Right. Uh, So uh, there's nobody there waiting for me. I don't like to do videos where there's people waiting on me because I don't like keeping them waiting. (laughs) That's the eternal struggle though, right? In the, in the sharing age. 
exactly. But, you know, I find it fun. And if my videos aren't very, you know, overly produced, I mean, I just do it for fun and to show people, um, you know, that they can mix, you know, the cooking methods together and, and some of the stuff that I do. Um, I'm not, I'm not a guy who's out there trying to be the, the biggest YouTuber out there or anything. I'm just trying to have fun, show people what I learned along the way. And and with the podcast is actually growing a lot faster because I get people on like you and Meathead and some of the others, uh, you know, people that are really big into CV that kind of talk about the cooking methods and what they do. And I think people get more out of that than me just doing a YouTube video. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you see too many people out on, especially on YouTube and Facebook that really don't even know how to cook and that are trying you know, it's rude to say, I guess, but I mean, it's true. You see some people and you're like, well, how are people watching this? Because the guy doesn't even know basic cooking principles. <laughs> you, well, know? you know, the funny thing is about that, like I, 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 I'm all for um, the free market in terms of like, if people want to watch that and other people put it out there, like good for them. But I'm also, it's also a little bit dangerous in, I think in the, in the age of the influencer. And I've kind of spoken about this before where you know, someone like myself, I, I've really, I've done short courses on, on um, meat science and cattle production and things like that. And I've, you know, read very dry textbooks and I've had real life experiences and learning and meat science conferences and all of this kind of stuff where it's backed by some pretty heavy self-education Um, and then you'll have someone comes along who just starts posting photos of their cooking might get popular, might start taking themselves too seriously and then kind of put this title on themselves. And I've seen it where people, for example, start talking about dry aging and they start talking about it with authority when they have really no experience with it whatsoever. And they'll, I've, I've heard people give completely erroneous information, which really sucks about, for example, the stuff that's in the vacuum seal bag, the water and myoglobin that's in there. I've heard someone who is in an influential position tell other people that that's like an added liquid that the meat industry puts in there <laughs> to soften the meat. And I'm like, but you can't, you know, you can't say to someone like, oh, you shouldn't be following this person because of this. You kind of have to just throw your hands up and just try and put good information out into the world. Yeah. And I find people come into the Facebook groups and do that. And what I normally do is I don't argue with people. I just post links of stuff that's actually been studied. And, you know, you know, especially in in my group, if somebody comes in and starts touting some tradition that they heard some guy, you know, their uncle's brother who went to a barbecue competition once, you know, says something like this is, you got to put mustard on your pork butt, you know, or else, you know, it's like, well, (laughs) so I'll just, post articles of, you know, from, you know, accredited websites, you know, that have done scientific research and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, like you said, you you don't want people to do something that's going to, especially when you're talking about food and cooking, it's going to make them sick, especially. So, well, and to that point, I, I just had a guy comment the other day when I posted about why it is safe to eat a raw steak. And he commented that, well, it's okay because he rinses his meat under cold water, which gets rid of the bacteria. And for those who don't know, because not everyone does, um, you know, water, there's a reason we wash our hands with soap and water. Water does not remove bacteria and it's very, it's 
it's not recommended at all to wash your meat because the splashing water can actually spread bacteria and the act of washing the meat does not remove bacteria. Um, but he, you know, he was an older gentleman who just swore black and blue that that's what he needed to do. And that's what he always did. And he wasn't going to be told any different. So um, that's why I like to just hope by, like you said, by gently posting links and gently like putting other information out there that it might help some people. So. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you're never, you're never going to convince everybody all the time because you're always going to have that guy. Yeah. This is the way I've always done it. This is the way my grandpappy did it and he showed me how to do it. And that's the way it is. And, um, you're never going to win the battles with those people, but as long as the people listening, if you can post enough to where they go, yeah, that guy over here makes more sense than this guy over here. (laughs) And that's all you can hope to do is, you know, if you post enough information that they can actually go to other places and find out information and say, this is why I have this opinion of something. It's not because my grandpappy, you know, did it this way. It's because here's studies that have been done or here's, you know, scientific information on why this happens or why you need to do it this way. So, Mm -hmm. but but yeah, there's, there's definitely got to be people like you and me out there that are trying to point people in the right direction because there is a lot of false stuff out there. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's move along and start talking about all things, hardcore carnivore. I mean, you started, you started, you know, back in Australia and falling in love with Texas barbecue. And now, um, here we are uh, a few years later and now you are hardcore carnivore. Uh, let's talk about how that all began. how did you start thinking about the brand and, and all that? Uh, it, it really happened very organically, which is to say I had an online website where I was posting recipes and I had an online community through my social media, but obviously I wasn't really teaching classes or as many classes back then. And, um, I don't have a restaurant. So there was no real way aside from recreating my recipes that, um, my, my audience and fans and followers could try the flavor profile that I liked. Um, and I, I came up with the first seasoning, which was the black seasoning that has activated charcoal in it, which is basically just meat cosmetics. Um, Activated charcoal does not make anything taste like it's grilled. So if you see that anywhere, someone is lying to you. Um, But it does give a great color to the meat. Um, And it's still our best-selling seasoning to this day. So uh, I kind of put that out there and and I thought, you know, I'm going to Hail Mary this. I can afford this first batch. And if no one, if it doesn't take off, then everyone gets a Christmas present with my name on it. Pretty much was my thinking. Um, just out of this desire to kind of keep sharing with my community and keep putting out cool products. And off the back of that, um, it did so well that here we are kind of three, three years later, there's five different seasonings in the line. There's tools and, and accessories like peach paper and high heat grilling gloves. And we're a complete um, kind of cohesive brand for I call it discerning meat enthusiasts. Um, And all of the rubs are developed like to this day, they're never developed based on hmm, what sells well, what does the market want? What am I going to release? That's going to be hugely popular. It's they're based on what do I want in my pantry? What do I think tastes best with meat? So my rubs are very low in sugar compared especially the pork rub, which is just called red. Um, which is all natural color. Usually pork rubs are very, very high in sugar um, because sweet does match with pork, 
But I, for me, twofold. One, if you have a high sugar rub, you can't use it for grilling because the sugar will burn. You can only use it for smoking. And two, when we do smoke pork, in most cases, be it a pork butt or ribs, you will pair it with a sauce that's also sweet. Um, and I think that most folks go too far over the sweet needle. Um, they push the needle too far. So it just gives you more control to take some of that sugar out of it. So all of the rubs are designed to enhance the flavor of the meat without overpowering it. I feel really strongly about that. Um, and I've been really lucky. It's just as simple as obviously there are other people who agree with that because most folks that try them, you know, especially with the black rub, just I get so much incredible feedback that, oh, but I'll never eat a steak any other way. This is the bomb. My And, and, and a weird phenomenon with women too. I get a lot of, my wife doesn't usually like steak. And now as long as I put black on it, we can have it several times a week. So maybe there's something with a female flavor palette that, that helps there too. I don't know. I'm glad you kind of came out and said that the charcoal is not a flavor profile at all, or it wasn't added for that. It was more of the uh, cosmetic because you do, you know, of course, just like most chefs will tell you, you know, that's why they plate, you know, so fancy is because you eat with your eyes a lot of times. What gave you the idea of adding the activated charcoal into the rub in the first place? Because you said that was your first rub you created, right? Yeah. I mean, I've seen it being used in food, um, but just, again, I had this idea that it could be, especially with barbecue and bark, um, like setting up that bark and creating it. The number one reason that I, that I wanted to use it was, and I say this in classes, the biggest mistake that people make when they cook meat at home, be it on a skillet indoors, a grill outside, a smoke, uh, or well, not really a smoker, but um, is that they don't get it hot enough. So they don't, they don't, get that grill hot enough. They kind of like the coals are half lit or they don't wait that extra time to let them really heat up. Or if they're using a propane grill, they're, they're at the limit of whatever BTUs their propane propane grill has. It doesn't get hot enough. Or if they're cooking in a pan in the stove at home, like most of the time people won't get it hot enough because they don't want to deal with their house smelling for the next two days and every smoke detector in the house turning on uh, and, and we don't, well, a lot of people don't realize that commercial kitchens have huge exhaust fans and huge burners and can just get things hotter. So this failure to get things hot enough, um, is the number one mistake I see new meat cooks make where they just don't get that aggressive sear and they don't get that crust. And then what happens is they keep cooking it and keep cooking it and keep cooking it. And then it overcooks as they're trying to achieve this perfect exterior. So the idea of using the black seasoning being that, well, if you already make it dark before it's even started cooking, then you're putting people ahead of the curve in terms of getting them something that already looks appetizing before it's even hit the grill. Yeah. And I think um, I've used it on steaks when I'm searing and it just, it makes that, that extra dark color does give it a little bit. It's, it's different. I mean, the Maillard reaction is usually not very dark. If you do it right, it's, it's more browning, more browning. But if you add that, you know, 
something I use a black garlic rib that I make myself. And, um, so it's a little bit darker as well. And it, it just makes it just that little bit darker. And it does contrast when you cut into that steak, that's medium rare. And you see that red contrasted against that, you know, really dark, uh, crust. It, it makes a big difference for sure. Yeah, I think so. And, and that's the other part of it. It's not just the, the look, but once you cut in any red meat, I use it with venison and lamb and, um, and of course beef. So it, it's very, very pretty. Now, have you started thinking about doing a, uh, any kind of sauces? I know Texas is not big on barbecue sauces, but, um, I know some of them do. I know Aaron makes his own just because I guess he thought he had to, but have you thought of making sauces? Yeah. I mean, I will say Texas does serve sauce. We just don't ever serve it on the barbecue. Like right. get it. <laughs> just if you pour it over the barbecue, you're probably hiding something. So, um, it's definitely something that we've, we've thought about, but it's just that same thing of we're, we're not going to rush a product to market or I'm not going to rush a product to market un- unless I'm hundred percent happy with it. And it's got to be something that I feel is not already available. Um, and it's got to be, you know, it's got to be great. It's, it's got to be great because people will keep buying it if it's great, but they're not going to keep buying it if it's just, you know, generic sauce with our label on it. So right. it's definitely in the R&D department. Um, and we, we, I've been thinking about it for a little while, but I just, yeah, we have we have pretty high standards for stuff around here. Well, and I that's one of the things I was just up um in Atlanta, north of Atlanta, there's a, a big grill company called Atlanta Grill Company, and they're one of the biggest in the southeast. And they have not hardcore carnivore, in fact. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and well, and they have just about every rub and sauce you can imagine. They have probably four aisles full of rubs and sauces, and you know, I'm sure there's a lot of them on the shelves, like especially the sauces that you know you could probably they all taste very similar. <laughs> so you know to have that different you know factor like with what you have with hardcore carnivore the black is that's there's not a lot of rubs out there like that and then it looks like to me the way you're developing your rubs is you want to be something different but still very very interesting and flavorful that that others are offering so that you want people to go yeah that's the one i really come back to because it doesn't taste like you know 20 of the 30 of the other different rubs out there so that's my hope yeah. All right. So what else you got going on? Now you have a cookbook out there I heard as well. There is. There's a cookbook called Hardcore Carnivore. It's got about 100 recipes in it. As I mentioned, it's a variety of different cooking methods. So we cover, you know, pork, lamb, chicken, game, beef, the whole gamut. Um, and there's frying, grilling, baking, braising, smoking, all of that. Um, of course there's the seasonings, which are at hardcorecarnivore.com or at an incredible retailer near you. We have a dealer locator there too. Um, and then I just do, I'm, I'm headed to Minnesota soon to be a keynote speaker at Minnesota barbecue society. I've just finished speaking at brisket camp at Texas A&M doing a grilling class at women who wander, um, headed to just did a class in Mexico too. And, and a class here in Austin and, uh, you know, I, I always try and post stuff on my website. And as I said, I still put out a recipe nearly every week and a video every week. So things get kept pretty busy around here. But the best place to just find me is jessprials.com is my website. Uh, if you're interested in, in learning more about me and my recipes, um, hardcorecarnivore.com, as I mentioned, is the seasoning. And you can find both 
myself and the seasoning have social media profiles on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. So do, do come say howdy. Yeah, I'll, I'll put links in the description below for uh, all of Jess's uh, links, especially her website and um, the hardcore carnivore and all that. Um, so yeah, you talked about you do some classes and, and all that. What about, I know, I know you're, you're a spokesperson for Kingsford and Lone Star and a couple other companies, and you got your own um, signature grill from uh, uh, Spits. Yeah, splits and what was it again? It's pits and spit. Yeah, pits and splits. There you go. Yeah. So, how, how did that come about? How how did you? Were, did they contact you to develop your own pit, or did you contact them? Or I met Ryan. So Ryan is is the owner there at Pits and Spits, and they're based out of Houston, and their their company has been in business for many, many decades and has a a great reputation. And I met him at one of the Texas A&M and Food Waste Texas uh, barbecue camps. And we attended a few camps. I attended camp and then I became a speaker at camp and he speaks on the panel there on pit design. So we ended up, um, you know, knowing each other that way and and just kind of talking and connecting. And it's just when two like-minded people meet, you know, there's, there's situations where big grill companies will just look for ambassadors that, that fit. Um, and Ryan, you know, has a very small, but bespoke company and was looking for someone, you know, I guess like myself that, that, made a lot of sense and really gave it some thought. And I'm very, very particular, even though I do get to work with incredible companies like Kingsford and Lone Star Beer and Gerber Knives, it's been really long time coming in. It has to be right for them, but it also has to be right for me Um, because my word doesn't really mean much if I just continue to take paychecks from whomever. So I say no to most of the endorsement and advertising opportunities that come my way. Um, just because I really want to believe in the product and, and, and mainly have my, my online community know that they can trust what I'm talking about. So connecting with Ryan and getting to just, I said, look, I've got these ideas, like, you know, not now I have a huge grill zone out the back, which, you know, makes sense for what I do, but most folks really have one grill. And so we, we designed it according to that, like, look, if we're not going to have an outdoor kitchen, we need to have this dry area of storage for butcher paper or thermopens or whatever it is. And that's how that came. And then, Hey, you know, most people are wrapping briskets these days. Let's get a, a, a paper roll on there. And I, I want to increase the size of the firebox because it gives us more control. So we worked on that together to develop the JP signature edition offset pit and you know, it's not cheap, but it's hand built and, and incredible uh, quality. And everyone that does have one is super happy with it, which is nice. But um, I also cook on PK Grill and, uh, you know, I've got a pit barrel in the yard. And I like that that freedom to use the different cookers for different things. I even have a Pits and Spits uh, uh, pellet grill now just because so many folks are cooking on pellet grills that I need to be able to um, make sure my recipes work on one of those too. So, uh, it's just, just, yeah, it's a, it's a great pit that I'm super proud of traditional offset pit. And yeah, I'm, I'm lucky to work with a company like that. Yeah. Uh, and I, I'm really, I'm where there with you as far as being picky on who you pick to, uh, you know, do an endorsement with. I work the same way, even though I'm, I'm much smaller. Um, I, I tell, I approach companies that I'm interested in and I tell them, look, if you partner with me, you're going to be my only 
you know, whatever you are, if it's, you know, with camp chef, I, my pellet grill, because I love the way their pellet grills are set up, you know? So I tell them, look, you know, I love your product. I already love your product. So it's not like, you know, I want you to just pay me. It's more, I love your product and I'm, I want to work with you. And I'm not just going to take any, anybody that knocks on my door or gives me a, you know, email. Um, so I can really understand because you are, you, you know, you got to make sure that you love the product and then it's something that, you know, if you're going to endorse it, that people are going to look at that and go, yeah, that's something that uh, I can uh, believe in because they told me about it. It's not just, I see a lot of these bigger YouTube guys, especially that they take, you know, a, a different grill every other week, you know, yeah. You, you just see them, you know, this week they're cooking on a green mountain grill next week. They're cooking on uh, you know, the Weber repellent grill or, you know, whatever. It's just, they're cooking on something new all the time and you can just never trust them. Like, why are you cooking on that now? You, two weeks ago, you told me you love this one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and people do change and I get that. And then there are other models where, you know, they, they, their model is just to get paid by whoever will pay them. And I understand that, but um, you know, I, the, I think it behooves the public. It serves you guys well to just always have a little bit of, um, just a little bit of critique, you know, go in with a little bit of skepticism about when you see someone post about something. Cause there's a lot of people who aren't using ad tags as well, but find people yeah. like myself and yourself who have you know, a little bit of uh, credibility and I uh, think yeah. you can believe them. Yeah. So yeah. Great. All right. So anything else you'd want to talk about before we uh, wrap this up? I mean, like I said, um, I'm very impressed. Do you find yourself as being a role model for other women that want to get into, especially like the barbecue and live fire cooking? Do you see yourself, do you have women come up to you and go, Hey, you inspired me? Uh, Yeah. I mean, my audience is mainly male just, I think because of the skew of interest in live fire cooking or meat, but um, you know, there's definitely, uh, there definitely have been those times when, when that happens, but I am always happy to make it accessible for women. Like if I can just open the door and make them feel comfortable, I think that's a wonderful thing, but I just try and uh, steer away from doing specific, like, Hey, this is a class just for women or, Hey, this is something, something, because I think that sends the message that it needs to be separated to work. And the reality is that anyone can grill, anyone can grill well. And I'm in the position I'm in, not because I'm a woman, but because I'm just, you know, I worked hard to get good at what I do. Uh, so I deserve to be here. But um, it, I, the more people who are comfortable getting out there um, and getting into their yards and, and approaching it, I think the better. And Pellet Grills have done that, you know, to a degree. And it's it's a double-edged sword because you see so many more people like, oh my God, I never thought I could grill and I am. And I'm like, well, you're not. You're you're turning a switch on, but good. But at least you're in the yard. That's one good step out the door. <laughs> we'll get you there. We'll get you to the next step. Yeah, I like breaking that stereotype too. That the you know the guy is the one grilling and the wife's in the kitchen cooking. I think that uh, both should be in in both areas. You know, 100%. if if you love to, if you love to cook, there's no reason why you can't cook outside and and cook in the kitchen as well. It doesn't uh, make sense to me that we know about all of our grandmothers' great recipes and our grandmothers' iron skillets and our grandmothers' you know beloved cookbooks, uh, but yet 
the yard is only the, you know, outside's only the man's domain. It absolutely should be switched both ways, as you mentioned. Yeah, makes no sense to me either. I've always loved to cook no matter how it is. So, (laughs) all right. Well, thanks for joining me, uh, Jess. I really appreciate it. A lot of good information. I'm going to have links to your website and some of the other products in the description down below. Um, I really look forward to having you on again someday. And um, good luck with all your stuff. And I appreciate you being on. Thank you. And thanks to everyone who's listened along. All righty. I appreciate it. Thanks again. I want to thank you all again for joining us on the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast. I want to thank Jess Priles from Hardcore Carnivore one more time. I hope you guys got some great information from it. Make sure you check out links to her website below and some of her products as well. Make sure you follow us on the Fire and Water Cooking YouTube channel, Facebook group and page, Instagram, and make sure you follow us next time on the Fire and Water Cooking Podcast.